0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hi everyone, my name is Ryan Mara Evans and I'm a student farm manager at the Yale Sustainable Food Program. Joining me in the studio today is food writer, Clarkson Potter, editor at large, and judge on Top Chef Masters, Francis Lam. Welcome Francis. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, So it's approaching the holidays, right? We have Thanksgiving coming up and then Christmas is right around the corner. And I, I can't help but think about about home and about the food that you know my parents cooked growing up um, definitely fiending for it so my first question for you today is where is home for you and what dish or dishes remind you most of home
1: hmm. well home for me it's funny because home for me isn't really a physical place and in, in the sense that you're talking about anymore in that my I grew up in New Jersey and um Although it's funny because I'm, I'm sort of like an honorary Southerner and like every time I go down south, I have like great friends in New Orleans and Mississippi and, and many points in the south. And every time I remind them I'm from New Jersey, there's this sort of look of first shock and then sort of a subtle pity. Um, <laughs> but my my parents like retired and moved down to Texas when I was actually when I was in college many, many years ago. And um, so I don't have that sort of physical sense of home in that way, where I go back to where I grew up and went back to that house. And so for me, a lot of my memories of home in, are kind of more of what you're talking about. They're sensory memories. And um, they aren't necessarily of holiday dishes, but they're of particular moments or flavors that will remind me of sitting at my parents' table mm. um, or different tables we called my parents' table at that time, like I remember just because you're bringing up these kinds of holidays when 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 I was growing up, my parents in the eighties um m- my parents are immigrants that came from China and you know, eventually, you know, started their own business and, you know, were sort of successful in the 80s and they did this thing that they heard you're supposed to do when you're successful, which is like you vacation in Florida. (laughs) And I remember we had, you know, we, we took a vacation to Florida and it was for Thanksgiving. We flew on Thanksgiving Day and we would get to, you know, we would get to the condo and not have food. And so I remember my mom the night before going to Pizza Hut, which was like my favorite restaurant, and buying an order of like meatballs and spaghetti to go, like a big old box of meatballs and like some and spaghetti on the side, like weirdly, like it wasn't even spaghetti and meatballs. It was like an order of meatballs and an order of spaghetti. And we got to this dark apartment, like literally infested with bugs, and she turned on the light to the kitchen, and she stuck this thing in the oven, heated up, and I remember eating Pizza Hut, meatballs, and spaghetti, and that was the greatest Thanksgiving dinner. So I have moments like that where um, you know, those are the sorts of memories that I first think of when you ask me what you know, what are the what are the sort of smells or or what are the sort of foods that remind you of home. It's it's more like these discrete moments than they are traditions that we had in our family year after year. Mm. Because actually the other thing about Thanksgiving is like I came up, you know, I came up in a Chinese-American family and Chinese people don't really get turkey. Like they don't understand why people like Chinese people eat everything. So they understand why it's a food because it moved at one point and things that move are always food, like food valid. But like (laughs) they don't really understand why you would actively want to eat turkey as a food um, because it's dry and like, you know, like why would you eat that when you can eat chicken legs, which are like obviously more delicious. Um, But I remember I was born and raised here and I remember thinking like, we have to eat turkey. We have to eat turkey because that's what all the kids in school are doing. And I'm going to be like the weirdest kid on earth if you don't You don't let me eat turkey for Thanksgiving. And I finally wore my mom down one year and she said, okay. And she went to the grocery store and went to the deli counter <laughs> and bought like five pounds of like turkey deli meat already sliced. <laughs> oh, no. damn. And, like and she like put it in the oven to like warm it up. She's like, you want a turkey, right? That's turkey. And I was like,
0: wah, wah, wah.
1: So, you know, travails of a kid who was trying to understand what it was to be like an American.
0: No doubt. You know, the, the, the socialization in, into like holidays or certain certain sense and food is tradition. Yeah, it's, it's stressful, man. It's stressful. I feel that. So, wow, great stories. What kind of words do you find yourself attracted to or what are your favorite words to describe the sensory, right? Like smells, tastes. Do you have any words that you're attracted to? What's it's the one on the top of the pyramid?
1: yeah you know I don't know that I have a word that i mean yeah i'm like I'm sure there are words that I use and abuse over and over again and and all that, but if i would I really like this is a question about language, and I think the thing that's interesting about the language of sensory description is that it's a really pretty bare cupboard, right you really in terms of vocabulary um things are. Um, salt or sweet or bitter or sour, you know, or things are hot or cold. Hot or cold. Um, but really, I think you you sort of have to rely on metaphor um, to describe things, because there's really no... There's no word for the flavor of a tomato, right? Aside from tomatoey, which is, you know, obviously tautological. Um, so for me, when I'm thinking about describing... The taste of a food, for instance. I try to use... I've, you know, I find myself, not intentionally, but I find myself using the language of music a lot when I describe food. I think about a rhythm of a flavor. I think about notes um, I think about highs and lows. And obviously this is not exclusively the music of language because the same thing, there's no there's no word to describe like, you know, the sound of a clarinet or, or the yeah. sound you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the sound of an F sharp, right, exactly. Um but it's like when I was a kid, I loved music. And I would read you know, I would read Rolling Stone, I read Spin, I read all these music magazines and um and most of it didn't make sense to me because I think most music writing is, like, deeply, deeply self-referential. <laughs> like, it, like I'm just sitting there reading about this stuff, and it's like, these are words, but they don't have meaning. Um, but what I really connected to when I listened to music are... Transitions and movements, and this idea of change and tension, and how things grow, and how things, you know, how they get louder and how they get softer, and like this idea of dynamics, I guess, um, and how dynamics work with each other. And so, when I'm describing flavors or describing eating things, I often sort of turn back to that language because I think that was so deeply sort of planted in my brain. Um, I mean, the other thing too is I think. I love food and I love cooking it and I love eating it. I really love eating it. Um, But I often think talking about food is sort of like the least interesting thing about food, right? It's For me, so often it's who's the person you're with or what's the space that you're in or, you know, what's the history of the person who made this food for you? Um, That person is usually invisible if you're in a restaurant, right? And, you know, how do you find how do you find that person and find their story? I think that's much more interesting to me, too. So, I mean, that's, I mean, I, this is obviously veering in a different direction. But.
0: So, to, to latch on something you said, you read a lot of music magazines growing up. Who are some of your favorite musical artists? And then, I guess, added into this, who are other influences in how you approach language, how you approach description?
1: Oh, my God. The greatest band of all time is Slater Kinney. And I just found out that they're—they have a new album coming out. They're like reuniting and they're touring, and it's like I've never been more thrilled. Um, So Slater Kinney, the Afghan Wigs, and like Modest Mouse are like three of my favorite bands. And um, but it's funny because, and I love them all for really different reasons. Uh, Biggie Smalls is probably my favorite artist of all time um, in any medium or genre. Um, Early Jay-Z is, like, in a similar way. You know, I think it's funny. I'm not a huge hip-hop head. Um, I never was a huge hip-hop head. that would be totally, like, overstaying it. But I I really loved rap, especially um, when I was a teenager and, like, in my early 20s, in, like, the mid-late 90s. And I think that sense of rhythm... That I got, and that sense. Uh, I mean, when you listen to Jay Z, like early Jay Z, I feel like his sense of rhythm was so complex and so supple. Like, there's this incredible. Um, you know, now I'm going to make myself sound like a fool because I'm like going to like name drop, but I'm going to forget the name of the track. But um, there's a tr- there's a track where he's a line where he's like he's talking about like he needs a money machine to count his money. And he goes, and he like, he's like rapping about his money machine to count his stacks of cash. And all of a sudden he just like breaks directly in the line. He just goes, you know, it's like, it's so incredible. His sense of rhythm is so incredible and the sense of sound of where word loses meaning and just becomes the sound but then you realize he's actually using words. You know, it's I feel like that level of complexity and that level of of, of sophistication and subtlety it was like really 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 mind-blowing to me. And Biggie, like the way Biggie told stories and the way he used detail. And I wrote a I wrote a I wrote an essay a few years ago for Salon um, called What Biggie Smalls Taught Me About Food. And You know, it was about the fact that my life and the life of the Notorious B.I.G., you know, are as different as any two people could be on this earth, right, pretty much. And But I would listen to him rap, and I would listen to him talk about how hard he was and talk about all these things that, like, you know, I would obviously never experience in my life, never have, like, that kind of mentality, never have that kind of feeling where it's like, I really have to go at the world like this because the world is always coming for me. But meanwhile, you know, in Sky's the Limit, he's rapping about he was a tough kid, and he had to be a tough kid, and so he'd beat up other kids. And once he did that, other kids started buying him chocolate milk, and they started buying him cookies, and the cookies were butter crunch. And he would describe—he would just add this level of detail that, for all of the distance between us, made me remember— well, hell, when I was a kid, I know how much I love those butter crunch cookies that came in the plastic wrap. I know exactly what he's talking about. You know, I know, I remember how much I love chocolate milk. And, you know, just as being able to establish that level, that sort of base level of human connection, regardless of where you are in your life and where I am in my life, I thought was super, super influential to me in understanding what you can do when you talk about food.
0: One of the things I really like what you just said was about how rappers, they they can break kind of that barrier of language and turn it into sound, which I think creates a level of atmosphere in a hip hop song that really transports you to the scene or to the story or to the history or to the memory that they're, they're rapping about. Do you find yourself trying to do that in your writing about food uh, as far as like breaking the barrier between the reader and the text and really bring the reader along with you? To wherever you're writing about, or whatever you're writing about.
1: I mean, I'd say I would want to aspire to that. I mean, I don't, (laughs) you know, I think it's it would be probably a little presumptuous of me to say yes, that's what I do. Um, But I think for every story I write, and I write, I I write a lot of different kinds of stories. I write. um, I went to culinary school, and I used to cook in restaurants, and I love to cook, and so I have, you know, I do do a fair amount of, you know pretty servicey like how-to instructional type pieces um, that I hope are really more than anything about getting people excited to try a technique, getting excited to cook and feeling like, hey, it's not that tough, like I can do it, right? So that's one kind of thing I do. Um, And I've done a fair, you know, I've done like cultural critique and essays about sort of um, the world of food or what we can see about politics or economics through or culture Um, through looking at questions that happen in food. But I probably would say that my favorite kind of story, um, my favorite kind of piece to write is narrative. Um, And my favorite kind of piece to write is narrative that helps to bring invisible people before the reader. And often that's a cook, often that's an immigrant, or often that's just someone who works in food. Because for all of the... Cultural cachet that food has gotten and for how you know a lot of ways you know the foodie culture you know for lack of a better term reaches lots of different economic strata right right at this point, which is exciting and great um but the one constant that has not yet changed is that people who work in food are almost always at the bottom of the ladder economically and because of that, or um, or relate to that anyway, we often don't know who those people are. They're anonymous. They're invisible, and they disappear right in front of us. Um, aside from the fact that literally in most restaurants, like they're actually in the back of the house, like you don't actually see them. So, for me, my favorite stories are the ones where I get to know someone who is otherwise invisible. And I get to, and they honor me and they sort of entrust me with their story and that I get to tell their story or help them tell their story to the larger world. And so in my in my career, I've written for magazines that are for um, often high-end uh, audiences. I was a staff writer at Gourmet Magazine, you know, which had a very sort of, um, you know, was a high-end magazine. And I've written for Food & Wine. I've written for Bon Appetit. And, you know, often the audience of these magazines are... Um, uh, are in positions where they don't see, where they really don't have to see these people, um, and I, I felt a, cert- a certain level of um, internal tension about that for a long time. Because before I was a, before I wrote about food um, full time, anyway, I worked in social justice, I worked in economic justice, I worked in community development, I worked in nonprofits. That was, you know, and I've I've always really been um, motivated by. Um, social justice and I thought well you know are you selling yourself out to go and write you know nice stories about food for rich people and like obviously I love the food and I love you know I love the food that rich people get to enjoy so you know is it like is it something where you're just going to your basis instincts of like decadence and luxury and the way that I've always explained it to myself or made myself feel better about things was that well in a certain way my work is political because if i can help humanize an invisible person i think that get that gets to the heart of politics right it's the day after election day right now and <laughs> rough day rough day rough day right and it's it's a it's a and what's the the roughest thing about the day isn't necessarily even who wins and who loses to me, it's the fact that our political discourse is all about demonizing people. It's all about the people who believe, well, not even believe the opposite of what I believe, the people who like vote for the team that I don't vote for are all animals. They're all monsters. And they're coming to take what doesn't belong to them. And you know, like, whatever, like, we have all these ideas about who like the other people are. And I think that's what's most heartbreaking about politics at this moment, right? It's, it's not even so much—I mean, a lot of it is the policies that result from elections, but it's—overall, it's the sense that it's constant cultural warfare, and it's cultural warfare waged by people against anonymous creatures that are coming for, you know, what doesn't belong to them. And it only serves to dehumanize more and more and more and more people. Um, And in my small way, if I can write about food in a way that makes you actually want to get to know an otherwise unknown human being, maybe I've done a little bit something, even like, you know, even a a microscopic um, change in that.
0: So definitely saw very strong elements of you know, the, the political relevancy of food and of food writing back in 2007 when we wrote that piece for the Times that kind of explored the phenomena of white chefs kind of going and taking, you know, foreign cuisines and then building careers off of them, whether due to structural things that allowed them to just have a greater audience or greater access to capital or the technical know-how to kind of navigate the legal structures to open up a restaurant, Um could you talk a little bit more about things like i think Edu Wong brought up, brought up this term kind of culinary imperialism um how do racial ethnic immigrant backgrounds play out in the food scene in food writing if it, yeah
1: <laughs> in three minutes or less um man it's it's really 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 complicated right um mm-hmm. You you just brought up a lot there, and I, I'm not exactly sure of how to respond to it. To be honest, I think um, well, if we if we go to the subject of that piece, which was it was yeah, like you said, it was about the idea that I, f- I forget exactly the way I phrased it for the Times, but I said something like you know, native-born American chefs who become famous cooking immigrant food, and more famous than immigrants who cook that food, right? Um, I was careful to not, I was careful to choose that language, even though it was really clunky and unpoetic, um, because I didn't want to say white chefs. Uh, but, you know, by and large, that's, that's kind of like, you know, the, the broad brushstroke version of what we're talking about. is like, oh, white people cooking non-white people food and getting famous for it. And like, that's really messed up. Um, and I tried to, and I tried to sort of think about that because I, You know, on some level, it's like, oh, yeah, that is messed up. But, like, you know, I don't know. I think of all the chefs I talked to um, for that piece, and I respect them greatly, every single one of them. Rick Bayless, I think, is a tremendous chef and who respects his source and his source material and the the people who inspire him tremendously. And I think he does a lot of work to try to point some of that spotlight on them. Um, Someone who I didn't mention in that piece but who's been on my mind a lot lately is is a chef named Chris Shepard in Houston. Um, he looks like an Oklahoma football coach it's like big burly white dude and he is one of the most popular restaurants in Houston and his whole thing is the story of the food of this restaurant is the story of Houston's food and to him what that means is it's the story of all the different immigrant communities in Houston that people don't seem to recognize as being a part of the fabric of that city And it's even one thing to say, like, oh, in New York, we're a cosmopolitan city of immigrants, and L.A. is a city of immigrants, and people don't think of Houston as a city of immigrants, but what he's trying to say very explicitly in his restaurant and his food is that it is. And he does this amazing thing where he goes and, you know, instead of um, staging or apprenticing at, you know, high-end restaurants in Europe, he stages or apprentices at Korean grocery stores in a Korean neighborhood of Houston or in a Thai noodle shop or in a Vietnamese market. And he learns to make these dishes. He puts his own spin on them and, and he's got like a and he has like a farm to table kind of thing going on, so he works with farmers to get his ingredients and da da. So he turns that food in a sense into high end food. But when you get your check, I haven't been to the restaurant, but this is um, what everyone has told me, when you get your check, it comes with a note and it says, you know, we want you to come back, of course, but before you come back to us, go to that Vietnamese market. Go to that Thai noodle shop. Here's their address. This is what they inspired me to do. Go to them first. And I think that's incredible. I think that's incredible for someone to sort of recognize that, hey, well, yeah, I mean, just to have his own source of inspiration and, and the success he has and and feeling like he needs to share that, um, spotlight with other people. At the same time, you know, you, you have to ask yourself, he's been doing that for a number of years now. And I still know his name and I still don't know the names of the people that he's trying to introduce people to, right? So, on some level, why is it that the interpreter remains more visible than the source? Um, and there's a lot. play there there are a lot of economic dynamics at play there a lot of cultural dynamics at play there a lot of probably racial dynamics at play there um and in the in the piece I wrote for the times you know I I it wasn't an op-ed piece right it was meant to be reported and it was meant to be thoughtful and analytical and you know I I I do think there are lots of reasons, you I know, mean, without pointing fingers, without like, oh, it's, it's not like a blame thing, but like, let's actually try to examine what are the dynamics at play here that make it so that someone like a Rick Bayless is more famous than any other Mexican chef, um, someone like an Andy Ricker, who again I respect enormously, and is a friend of mine, is more famous than any other Thai chef in the country, and a lot of it is is access to capital, right? A lot, you know, they're they're not in working class immigrant communities, they're they're not, they are not they're not in that stratum. Um, They have investors. They have people who are looking at them. They have people who want them to expand and so on and so forth. A lot of it is cultural fluency and recognizing that, you know, one of the things that doesn't really, I don't remember actually if it comes in the article or not, is the irony that, you know, your local Thai takeout place is quote-unquote serving, is serving quote-unquote inauthentic Thai food. But you look at Andy Ricker, white guy from Vermont, Via Portland is cooking "quote
0: unquote" authentic Thai food. Yeah, or the instance of you know, like hand rolled tortillas. Yeah, yeah, Olympic yeah, stone. yeah,
1: yeah. And 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 the f- the the sort of perverse thing about that is, I think in a lot of ways because we allow them to cook, we as a market, right, allow them to cook that food and allow them to be our guides to these exotic cuisines. When your local Thai takeout place, we don't give them that. We don't empower them to do that, right? We won't pay for it, right? If it requires more labor to make that food, we're not going to pay for it because you know your local Thai place has to be like four ninety five for the lunch special and like chicken pad Thai's got to be seven ninety five. But Andy can charge a little bit of a higher price because we go there expecting an adventure, right? So we're, we're ready to pay for the adventure, and part of it is that I think put yourself in the immigrant cook's shoes. You just know your food, right? right. And, and this is already assuming that the immigrant cook actually is meant to be a cook, like trained as a cook and all that versus like came to our country, came to the United States and was like, wow, I need to make money somehow. Here's, a, you know, here's help wanted, you know, like and just kind of slogging it through. Like already that's a, that's a big difference, right? When we think of chefs and chef culture, we think about people who were drawn to the vocation because they want to go to the vocation and not because like that's just where they need to go and make money to feed themselves at night. Anyway, so imagine you're an immigrant cook and you actually know how to cook and you know your food, but all you know about your food is, like, that's your food. And you know what's delicious to you and you know how to make it. But there's no, there's no cue that you can understand that, like, okay, the fermented shrimp paste, which you love, you know, the audience in New Haven is not going to love. But, you know, green curry with coconut milk, which you also love, the audience in New Haven will love, you know. So there, you don't. It, it's hard for them to really discern. Well, what is it? What is it about A that they'll like and B that they won't? And at some point, because you need to keep the lights on, you have to. You end up cooking to the lowest common denominator, right? Whereas someone like Andy Ricker can say, "Well, I love the stinky shrimp paste, but I just know my clientele won't go for that, right?" But there's this other dish that I've learned while traveling in Thailand that I'm sure they'll love, and I don't have to modify at all because they'll just love it as is. And so in a sense, he can pick and choose in a different way than the immigrant cook might be able to because they're just being like, I don't know, I guess what they like is sweet, so I'll just make everything sweet. You know what I mean? It's sort of a different—it it becomes a different um, whittling process for your menu. And, and you know, and when you talk about immigrant working-class cooks, immigrant working-class cuisines, like— you don't have, like, an experimentation time where you get to, like, <laughs> refine your menu.
0: Let's you go just and like, bust it out. You yeah, do it. no, like,
1: you know, it's pad thai for $7.95 a pop. I need to sell a lot of these things.
0: So you mentioned the, this idea of, of a market or of an audience. Could you talk a little bit about the audience for your writing, how it's changed, who you write for, what kind of audience you would like to write for? Hmm.
1: You know, it's funny because, like one of the fundamental rules of writing is you have to you you have to know who you're talking to, right? And <laughs> I kind of don't know who the hell I'm talking to. Um, i I want to believe that people who are really in, interested in I, well, here's a fear. Maybe I'll just go about it the other way, right? Here who this is what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that people who are really into food won't like my writing. <laughs> And I'm afraid that people who aren't into food won't like my writing. And I say that because I'm, quote unquote, a food writer. But I always feel like, again, when I'm writing about food, I pretty much mostly would rather be writing about something else. And so, writing about food is just the way for me to get there. If I'm telling, if I'm trying to tell the story of a place, if I'm trying to tell the story of a person. For me, the food piece of it is often the way to establish a connection with the reader and to bring them in through their senses um and then you know and then and then feed them the story that way, as it were um not that it's a bait and switch, but it you know i'm not i do i don't do a whole lot of purely rhapsodic oh my god this is like the toe curler you know pork rind or whatever you know um so, so my fear is that you know the, the super foodie who all they want to do is just read food porn isn't going to be into it and then the other fear is you know people who aren't into food won't get to the story because they don't feel like there's something there for them um
0: so i don't know who keeps the lights on for me <laughs> maybe everyone in between hopefully you you touched on food porn. Could you could you say how the erotic kind of figures into your writing at all, um, whether metaphorically or literally? Are you coming on to me right now? No. That's really weird. <laughs> <laughs> um.
1: Yeah. I I kind. You know. I don't know that it does beyond. Okay. This is what I'll say. I'm gonna get on like I'm gonna get on, like this like sex positive jag here, but you know, it, you know. I'm, I'm in a college town, so it's whatever. It's, like, no big deal. I kind of feel like people often conflate the sensory and the sensual with the erotic inherently, right? And I think it's because we're really freaking repressed, and, like, anything that feels good, it's like, oh, that's like sex. Oh, that's like sex. And it's, like, a little bit, like, hee tee tee-hee, teehee. And it's like, you know what? It doesn't have to be like sex. It can just be its own super awesome thing. Not that sex is not its own super awesome thing, but not every super awesome thing needs to be, like, do we need to pretend is like sex. So, like, I don't know. I, can, I have to say, I mean, there are people who do it really well, but I, I'm... i It's really hard for me to think of a passage of someone describing the pleasures of food and making it sound like sex where I'm not automatically rolling my eyes because I'm like, hey, guess what? We've heard that one before, you know? I mean, like, the one the one thing I can think of in film anyway, is, like, is, um... Oh, what was that Tilda Swinton movie? It's called I Am Love, I think, where there's, like, this really kind of amazing, kind of, like, weird scene where she's in a, a restaurant and she's eating this food and she's, like, her toes are curling and all of a sudden, like, this spotlight just shines on her. And that, I thought, was well done. And then she goes and has sex with the chef. And I thought <laughs> that was really well done. But, like, I, honestly, for me, I I... Like yeah, it's a source of it's a source of metaphor, but almost always kind of winking because I feel like it's a little bit
0: overdone. Little bit like, yeah. yeah. To go to maybe not the the opposite end of the spectrum, could you talk a little bit about how Yelp culture or Yelp reviews are kind of the democratization about talking about food? Uh, how do you, how do you respond to that? How do you interact with that? How do you situate that within the larger? genre of food writing. Um Well, I think
1: there're two things that are really interesting about Yelp, right? And, and and talking specifically about Yelp. One is for a lot of people, it's really apparent that this is in fact a medium for them for them to write, for them to express express language for them to tell stories for them to you know and and then fundamentally to give their opinion I think it's super interesting as a phenomenon for that um, and anything where people can sort of be inspired by the existence of a medium to then create in that medium I think is cool I'm into that for sure um, then you turn to the other thing about Yelp as as a medium of critique and then that's where I think it kind of really goes off the rails to be completely frank Um, I think there I think that just when you often read it I feel like there's um I get the idea is like oh you look at it and like yeah you can have outliers but like the point is you have a large sample size and so you can see okay well 99 out of 100 people love this place, and this one person is going off the handle how much they hate it, well, you can kind of figure out what that means to you, right? And that's totally fair. But I think, um, you know, whether Yelp should occupy a space that, say, displaces conventional or traditional food criticism, I think is really, really, really problematic. Um, Because I think food criticism... Is in a place right now where it is becoming something more, and if it gets cut off at the knees because of the economics of you know journalism, I think that'd be that's really sad. Um, and what I mean by that is this: I think for a long time, and still to this day, most readers probably think of a, a restaurant review or uh, as basically being a service column you know really at the end of the day is it it's you know what time is it open what kind of food do they serve should i go there does it cost too much you know you can kind of boil it all down into like that and then you know put in a picture and you know and then for a lot of people they're kind of good to go um and then you add another layer to it's like well is entertain is the reading entertaining right and then a lot of people sort of stop there but i think what's really exciting about what A lot of our best restaurant critics are doing and that I've seen over the course of certainly over the last few years although there have been people who've done this throughout time is the idea that restaurant criticism should exist in the same realm as other arts criticism and not as Purely a service piece, right? Not as purely a, a consumer advocate kind of column, right? And where it talks not just about the food, but about the life of a restaurant and what that means to the life of the place where the restaurant exists. I think of Sam Sifton, for instance, um, and a lot of people gave him a lot of flack when he was a restaurant critic in the New York Times for writing so much about who goes there, who goes or who goes there? Like, who was at the next table and what was the conversation at the next table? And, uh, you know, I remember reading a lot of people who were really annoyed by like, just tell me about the food. And, and I think what he's saying is, no, it's, the point is it's not just about the food. The point is what does this restaurant and its customers say about the culture of New York City, right, as it exists in this space? And how is the culture of New York City shown here and how is this place affecting larger culture? And, you know, Ruth Reichel, who is a friend and a mentor of mine, you know, when she was a restaurant critic in the New York Times, brought so much of the element of personal narrative to it, right? And really brought an emotional life of the eater uh, to her critique. And, you know, someone like, Jonathan Gold is the first restaurant critic that every food writer points to, and the first food writer points to as being their favorite food writer, and because he is magnificent. You know, but he, in addition to being, like, a, a, just a, an unreal stylist, has a true love of the cultures of, of... the cultures that produce the cuisines, you know, that he's eating, right? And so he's really, really, really talking about that. Um... And I could go on and on and on, uh, many, many, you know, critics who I feel do a kind of work there that is about the city where they work or the place they work or that is about how food engages with the culture where they are. And I kind of feel like if we boil Yelp down to, okay, do you go there, do you not? Or, you know, how how many, like, sick burns can you fit into your, like, I was really pissed because they wouldn't seat me within ten minutes of my reservation. You know, slag. I just don't think that that really does a service to what um, restaurant criticism is and can continue to grow to be.
0: And there's an opportunity, I think, in restaurant criticism too to comment on on the political and on the social and on the economic angles. Yeah, 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 and, well, and
1: yeah, and certainly criticism. it's not like you couldn't you you couldn't log on to Yelp and do that yourself. But I think there's a lot to be said about having a voice, and yeah, that's undemocratic. But I think there's a lot to be said about having a voice that people are engaging in conversation with, engaging in reacting to. Um, that kind of comes above the scrum.
0: So my final question for you. What advice would you give to an aspiring food writer?
1: Oh man, this is the worst question of all time <laughs> um, What advice would I give to an aspiring food writer? you know i think in and I, I think it's the worst question of all time because I can only answer that in really general ways and abstract ways and and i hope not in platoonal ways um but i would say first and foremost before we get to how to pitch learn how to pitch um before we get to you know constructing a story learn how to construct a story before we get to Write a killer lead in a killer first graph. Learn how to write a killer lead in a killer first graph. All that stuff. Before we even get to all that, the question I want to, the advice I want to give is ask a question. And that is, what do you want your food writing to do? I would ask that of any writer, really. Um, but I think you have to go into every piece with a sense of what you want your work to result in. And whether or not you know, and not to prescribe what the reader should get out of it, but I mean but what I I mean by that is what are the questions you want to ask? What are the questions you want the reader to ask? What are the things you want to bring to light? What are the things you want the reader to be able to see? I think if you don't have those always gnawing at you. It's really, really, really hard to find your way, I think, in a story. Um, And in food in particular, the danger of not having those things guiding you is that you then do fall into the trap of just being a voluptuary, of just being of just describing the decadent and I don't know I feel like we have we have plenty of descriptions of the decadent I think decadence is all around us and we need people to give it shape and we need people to point it in a direction that's useful
0: okay thank you for this interview Uh, thank you Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at www.yale.edu/sustainable food.